Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. At the preschool pancake breakfast last week, I overheard a mom reminding her son to take a napkin and wipe off his face. He said, I already wiped it with my tongue. And I thought, that's a sermon title. And today it is. Try as we might to present ourselves with clean faces and clean lives before our holy God, no matter how hard we try and, and we stretch to live the lives he asked for on our own efforts, he always sees spots we missed, because our best efforts alone are always going to fall short. The good news is that God will wipe us perfectly clean for Jesus' sake. And we'll learn this morning what a blessing that really is. In our reading from Deuteronomy today, Moses is giving a kind of farewell sermon to his people on the They're camped uh, kind of on the banks of the Jordan River. They anticipate crossing over into the Promised Land at any time. Uh, They've never been to Canaan before. They've never really lived in any settled area. They've been a nation of wanders, uh, nomads. These people had been born in the wilderness. They were the children and the grandchildren, maybe the uh, great-grandchildren, who had been born in the wilderness to the people who fled Egypt with Moses uh, 40 years earlier. Because those people had not managed to stay clean, had not chosen to trust God at all times, had disobeyed God, turned away from God, even to the point of, of, uh, of chasing after idols. Their ticket to the promised land never got punched, and, and they died in that wilderness. This morning, Moses puts it plainly to this newest generation of God's people. They're at a fork in life's path, and he says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. One way will lead to to life and blessings, the other to death, or maybe wish you were dead. And there's no question about which direction Moses wants the people to go. Choose life, he says, so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days. It's more significant, really, than they can ever imagine. The danger of a wrong move, more real. The choice they make now, he says, will change everything. Like the land of Egypt their parents and grandparents had left behind, the land they were about to enter was filled with people who worshipped a whole host of foreign gods, worshipped idols. And the Israelites would be taunted and they'd be tempted to chase after some of them. Despite Moses' warning, many of them would chase after them and they would suffer terrible consequences for it. There are only two ways, Moses was declaring, God's way and the other way. It's like my way and the highway. When you choose God, you choose life. But choosing God is more than just choosing to live. It's choosing a whole new way of life. Last week in the section preceding today's reading in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we looked at how the people of God are supposed to be salt and light in the world. As useful as salt and as guiding as light to lead people living in the darkness of sin back into the light of Christ. It's about the direction of a believer's moral compass. Uh, the way it should be pointing. It's not north, but heavenward. Today he goes on to help us reflect on just how well we've done that. You know, we could probably sit here and think, well, we certainly did a better job than the people that followed Moses into the wilderness. People who danced around a golden calf while he was up on the mountain with God receiving the the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Jesus is getting us to think here what the life of God's people in the world looks like in practical terms, even today. And frankly, as we go through this, you'll find that uh, it stings. And so he begins offering a list of practical suggestions, rules of conduct, really. Not to somehow earn our salvation, that's God's free gift. 
Um, but as a way to sort of return the favor of Christ's sacrifice for us, to give back in, in the way that he knows is best. We don't care much for rules as a rule, but we do need some kind of playbook. And we're all familiar with rules. We live with them ever since we took our first steps. We knew even back in those toddler days that some things were no-nos. In fact, uh, no just might be the first word many toddlers learn. And probably, in your case, you were a curious kid. It was from your mother. Right after you put something interesting and unknown into your mouth, you found on the floor. Or as a future genius, you turned over your cereal bowl just to test the physics of gravity. Rules aren't really so bad, though, are they? We learn to adapt. And before long, we figured out, we learned that, that rules have, have loopholes. They have exceptions and various interpretations. A rule like no chewing gum, for example, might be legally interpreted by a fifth grader to mean I can have gum in my mouth just so long as I don't chew it. And by the time get, kids get to high school, they, they have the legal prowess of a seasoned lawyer who quickly learns all the rules in that place and then all the ways to get around them. Even after graduation, when the young adult makes his or her debut in the workplace, they'll find that there are still rules and codes of conduct that need to be followed. Life comes with boundaries. And that's really not a bad thing, but rules alone tend to fall short. For a people of God who've been given new hearts in the waters of holy baptism, that new heart soon finds itself at the forefront of a raging battle. A war between the, the chivalrous desire to follow those rules in response to God's love, to do great deeds worthy of that love, and the all-too-human temptation to find a way around them. Along those same lines, the Apostle Paul continues the train of thought he began last week in his letter to these fairly new believers in Corinth. He says he'd been feeding them with milk, not solid food in his teaching, because they weren't ready yet to understand more than that. They were still arguing with each other. The congregation had begun to splinter into factions that, that uh, held their loyalties to different leaders. Remember, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, I follow Paul. They'd been reborn in the waters of baptism, one in Christ Jesus, but they were still immature spiritually. It's not really much different today. Symptoms of spiritual immaturity might include things like holding to the belief that your new faith is going to ensure that you'll prosper, or at least protect you from great troubles. New believers might approach prayer as a sort of shopping list of requests. They might find themselves struggling with the same weakness over and over with no success, what was referred to in the old days as besetting sins. Like the Corinthians, they might hang their faith on a particular human leader or believe that the main reason for even going to church is for what you receive there. The marks of, of spiritual growth, on the other hand, might include understanding that your faith is neither a guarantee of your prosperity nor protection from troubles, but the certain knowledge that through it all, God is with you. Spiritual maturity understands that prayer is a way to make you vulnerable to God, or that you might see more success in your struggle with, 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 your, with uh, uh, your besetting sins, but at the same time realizing that salvation isn't something you earn. It's a gift from God. It's hanging your faith on Jesus. Despite how human leaders serve him, more fail in serving him. And you realize that going, churches, going to churches for both what you receive and what you give. Jesus is speaking to followers here in the Sermon on the Mount, to believers, his disciples, and people who've been listening to his teachings. And they felt that they'd moved beyond this 
the spiritual milk and we're ready for some solid spiritual food. And they came away realizing that growth in God's word never stops. That it's a whole lifetime of learning. They knew that the rules were still important. But they came away that day realizing that the principles behind those rules were even more important. Something most of them had never even considered. Realizing that a God-pleasing life wasn't just about what was written in stone. Just like it wasn't about the letter of the law like they'd been taught. It was about the spirit of the law. This was the kind of solid food that Paul refers to. And it must have jolted them. Just like it should jolt us. Realizing just how badly we need a savior. The law was about character as much as it was about a curb to teach us right from wrong. According to the prophet Jeremiah, the people of God have the law of God here in their hearts. It's part of our character now. The scribes and Pharisees thought they had it all figured out. They worked hard to keep the letter of the law, but now Jesus comes along and he drops the bomb that they were missing the point. That the law pointed to something much bigger. It pointed to a way of living as, as the people of God in the kingdom of God. From our reading this morning in Matthew chapter 5 right through to to, uh, chapter 7 at the end of Jesus' message, he's establishing a pattern. Not really all that different from the one Martin Luther does in his explanation to the Ten Commandments. The what does this mean part. You know, you should not do this, the law says, but you should do that. Jesus was, was closing the loopholes by pointing them to the spirit of the law. Look at the first one. He says, you've heard that it was said of, to, of, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's probably the easiest one for us to blow off. Uh, and one of the big ten that came down the mountain with, with Moses, written in stone. We can look back at all the times we've tried and failed to keep God's guideline for give, guidelines for living. And most of us, I suspect, could say with confidence, well, sure, I did this and I did that and I did the other thing, but at least I've never murdered anyone. Of course, when you get to be some of our ages... It's always safe to add, at least that I recall. You know, murder destroys another person. And so the law of Moses minces no words. And most of us are able to deal with that one. But while it's clear to anyone short of a a psychopath or a crazed clown that murder is wrong, Jesus exposes the, the root of that commandment. But I say to you, he says, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Can you be serious about that? You know, that it's not about ending a life as much as it is about the anger that may or may not have resulted in the ending of that life? Yeah, he is. And it is. Every time we allow anger to smolder inside of us, we become less than fully human. Less than the people God created and then recreated us in baptism to be. Make sense? Now, instead of merely avoiding murder, the people of God, in accordance with the spirit of the law of God, should embrace reconciliation, which leads to peace within the community of God. Now, when it comes to the commandment about murder, Luther suggests that it means we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but, he adds, help and support him in every physical need. That's the spirit of the law. Jesus tackles another one. He says, uh, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust depersonalizes people. It dehumanizes them into objects used for our own pleasure. 
On one hand, we might be able to avoid the physical contact of, with an act, of, of an act of adultery, but we don't think about the emotional or the, the psychological attachment of lusting for them just uh, being just as destructive. You know, not just to ourselves either, but to a marriage relationship maybe. You know, it's like the online affair. They usually start innocently enough. You know, you get a like or a request to friend an old flame or a boyfriend or girlfriend maybe from your past who stumbled on you. And you say, sure, it's great to hear from you again. But as the correspondence goes on, the fantasies begin. The memories return. You begin to dwell in your past. And then there's a remark in the chats that might be seen as an opening to take it to the next step. And before you know it, you're online flirting. You know, the instant gratification on social media sites stimulate reward centers in the brain like a drug. And it's easy to find yourself craving another quick hit of that connection or even lamenting its absence. Even without the senses driving attraction, the mind goes into overdrive and imagines that this is the perfect person in a perfect relationship. And before long, a person may feel like an online friend knows him or her better than their partner does. And an artificial sense of intimacy evolves that can begin to consume a person's thoughts. And that's even more exciting because now this is a secret relationship and then you begin to wonder what a physical relationship with this person might be like. And you can begin to feel like you're falling in love all over again. It's a modern uh, day relationship destroyer. And it's adultery of the heart just as sure as if you were sneaking out at night to meet that person at the local no-tell motel. Your safest bet when someone from your past reaches out to you beyond friends to flirting is to one, share that fact with your partner, and two, wish them well, explain that you're in a relationship, and end it before it begins. Christ calls us not to simply avoid breaking the law, but to avoid breaking the fidelity of marriage that supports and strengthens the community of God, the kind of community that Christ has with his bride, the church. God's kingdom is characterized by faith and faithfulness. And when we learn to embrace fidelity in our hearts and in our relationships, we'll have learned how to embrace it forever. You know, Luther wrote concerning sexual sins in the sixth commandment, we should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor one another. Well said, right? 500 some years later. When Jesus addresses the issue of divorce, he says that with the exception of infidelity, divorce should be off the table since the root of marriage is faithfulness, community, and love. Paul would later add desertion by an unbelieving partner. But divorce will happen among a fallen people living in a fallen world, and sometimes for pretty good reasons, including a person's safety and well-being. See, again, you have to get to the heart of the matter, which is that special, sacred relationship uh, of Christians in marriage that was designed to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. He was willing to die for her. And for us, it means that shed blood covers all the mistakes we make even when choosing a partner. When he talks about the law forbidding taking vows, he's not talking about, uh, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court of law. He's emphasizing the real point that vows shouldn't even be necessary because we should always tell the truth. You can see the pattern at work here, can't you? There's more to the law than just the letter of the law. There's the all-important spirit of the law behind that letter. It was so much more than people ever imagined and certainly much more than they'd ever been taught because their teachers hadn't understood it. Keeping the spirit of the law is a reality that none of us has kept perfectly. 
And that should drive us to the foot of the cross where we're reminded that God has chosen you in spite of your shortcomings, past, present, and future. That he sent his son to suffer and die for you and washed you clean in the waters of baptism where he claimed you as his own. When he sees you through the prism of your faith in Christ, he doesn't see you wrapped in the torn and tattered rags of all your faults and failings. He sees you wrapped in the robe of Christ's own righteousness. His perfect life lived for you, forgiven and freed from the law's condemnation. He's given you his Holy Spirit to guide you in the spirit of the law in all your ways. You know, you're no longer defined by what you do, but rather who you are in Christ. You're blessed in spite of all the ways the world has worked against you. Every choice will lead you somewhere. question is, where do you want to go? Why not simplify your choices and simply choose life? Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.